0: Welcome back to the TLDR News UK podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and I'm joined by Ben Blissett. Hello. And Zach Mikadis. Hello. How are you both doing?
1: Yeah, very Great. well.
0: Yeah. Good. In today's episode, we're going to be running through some of the biggest underreported stories from around the world today. We're also going to be talking about Rishi Sunak's latest developments in the emergency Rwanda bill, as well as the implications for him and his government. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to be updating the world leader leaderboard, which if you haven't seen an episode of the podcast before, we'll explain at the end. But first, let's talk about our underreported stories and let's start with your one
2: then. Yeah, so mine actually, mine comes from the UK this week, but I think it's a really important one. Um, So last week, Rishi Sunak actually lost his first vote uh, in the House of Commons and it's on um, an issue that has sort of been going on in the background for a little while. So this is the um, contaminated blood scandal. So this was something that actually happened in the 70s and 80s. So um, there was, the NHS gave out certain blood products to people um, and Unfortunately, a lot of them were given out to people with haemophilia, um, and uh, a lot of the, these products were infected with things like HIV um, uh, and uh, hepatitis as well, hepatitis C. Um, the government needs to, it was it was done by the NHS, so the government needs to give out compensation for this, but it's not exactly been agreed on yet how how much etc. There was a vote last week on the uh, victims um, victims and crime bill, I think it was, and they there was a certain number of backbenchers that pushed for an amendment to this bill. Um, This amendment would set up a scheme to give compensation to the victims um, and the government lost. It was, as I say, the first. It's not only the first one that SUNAX lost, it's the first lost government vote since the 2019 general election. Hmm. So what that means now is the government has about three months to set up this compensation scheme. Now, the government's argument was that we need to wait until the the inquiry has done its findings and everything, then we'll set up a scheme. Um, There's some interim payments before that, but they were saying we should just hold off. Um, But campaigners have been really pushing for compensation to be paid because it's estimated that um, one person who's affected by the scandal dies every four days. So they, they see it's really important that this compensation gets to the victims as soon as possible. So it was largely Tory backbenchers that voted for this amendment and now means that the government has to set up this scheme. So it's quite a big thing that the government lost this. It's quite a big thing that the government pushed um, for the compensation to sort of be withheld until the inquiry's um, done its findings in total. But it's seen, you know, it's seen by backbenchers and campaigners that speed is really of the utmost importance considering, you know, how many people are affected. Mm-hmm. And because it was in the seventies and eighties, people are dying yeah. um as this is going ahead. So yeah, first one the government had lost. It's you know quite a, a, a tricky situation for them. Um but yeah it seems like uh you know backbenchers seem to think that it's really important that this gets done quicker. Interesting.
1: Zach, what's your underreported story? So mine's pretty miserable as well, unfortunately. I'm about the um the, the most recent COP communique. So mm. there's obviously COP28 going on at the UAE at the moment. Um, and the most recent communique, and it had a time of, like, recording. So we're recording this, what, Monday afternoon? Mm-hmm. It hasn't been verified by all of the, like, uh, participating states. But the latest readout um, has basically ditched most of the language about fully phasing out fossil fuels and oil and gas and is instead talking about reducing consumption and production in what they've as a fair and equitable manner. And like that is euphemistic talk for basically saying that we are going to continue using fossil fuels like basically forever. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's no strict deadline. And I think that this is interesting because it's quite abrupt. Like Only a year ago, there was a lot of optimistic chat at the last COP about how um, we were making really good progress on the energy transition, look at all the investment, um, and basically sort of like, oh, we're finally taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know precisely what's changed, but the, the change in tone is really quite notable. And I think it's a bit of slightly depressing sign that you know, it was very easy to make targets for future politicians back in the sort of 2010s and the, maybe even the 2000s. But as those targets near, and we get to like what we might describe as like the business end mm-hmm. of the energy transition, uh, politicians are quickly sort of like turning their nose up at them. And I think you should something, I mean, I think the US is the most acute example of this at the moment, because uh, this is something that's gone entirely underreported as well. But the US today is the world's largest crude oil producer. Mm. And more than Saudi Arabia and Russia, that's like, I think the first time Depends if you include shale, but like really, for the first time since some the late twentieth century, and that's pretty amazing. And that's just because you know, basically, the Saudis and the Russians have been cutting production to try and push up prices, and the Americans responded by increasing production try and keep the prices nice and low. And that just goes to show that even in what should be like a front runner in the energy transition, I mean, mm-hmm. the Americans really should be. They're just one of the wealthiest countries in the world; they can afford it. At the end of the day, like um, sort of economic concerns and geopolitics just do trump climate concerns mm-hmm. and it's just quite depressing i think that the the change in tone uh, from this cop compared to the last one is just it's really really conspicuous and it's not underreported i mean everyone's like talking about it but given that it is like i think it's fair to say the most important policy issue like facing the world <laughs> it is quite it's, it's worth it's worth noting
0: absolutely yeah Before we continue and before we get to the UK's latest Rwanda policy and what it means for Rishi Sunak, I just wanted to quickly shout out our newspaper, Too Long, which if you didn't know is the full-length newspaper that we've made over the last few months and is available right now. It's 32 pages long, features a ton of articles written by the TLDR team and some of our favourite creators, and if you'd like a copy and if you'd like to support the channel, then you can head over to our website, tldrnews.co.uk, to pick up a copy. And if you do so now and you live in the UK, it may well get to you before Christmas. Thanks for your support. Let's get to the meat of the podcast and let's talk about the Rwanda bill, specifically the emergency Rwanda bill, which was announced at the end of last week. Ben, do you want to run through a brief rundown of what that is and what's contained in the bill just for people who may not have seen this morning's video on the topic?
2: Yeah, so very, very briefly, It's a way for Sunak to try and get around some of the um, High Court and Supreme Court rulings about his Rwanda policies. This was a policy that was established last year um, in Boris Johnson's government by the then Home Secretary Priti Patel. The idea is is that um, people who are seeking asylum in the UK, they've made it to the UK, they're putting in an asylum claim, um, will be sent to Rwanda Mm -hmm. um, to have their claim processed there. Now, if they are seen to be a true asylum seeker and are then determined to be a refugee, they'll remain in Rwanda. If not, they'll be sent back to their country of origin. Um, This went through a couple of sort of um, reviews by multiple different um, courts, so Mm -hmm. High Court, um, Court of Appeal, and then Supreme Court. Um, And it was found that Rwanda didn't have the... um, they didn't have a robust enough judicial system to accurately determine who isn't isn't an asylum seeker. Mm-hmm. So the fear was that someone who is a legitimate refugee could be sent back to their country of origin, where they could face persecution, which breaks something known as the non-refoulement law, which is part of the UN. Um, it, it's it's a rule by the UN Refugee uh, Convention, um, and it, it basically says that you can't send an asylum seeker back to a country where they can face persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that Sunak wanted to get around this, he had sort of two points to this. First, he wanted to come up with a treaty uh, with Rwanda, which which he did. Um, and the idea is, is to set up a couple of different things to try and make the um, judicial system a little bit... Um, uh, you know, more robust, so it has some sort of like um, oversight by the UK, mm-hmm. effectively. So that has now been signed. It's, uh, it needs to be approved by Parliament within twenty-one days. Um, and he also, the second part of that is, you know, what we're discussing now, it's the emergency Rwanda bill. Now. It was the Supreme Court that said that Rwanda isn't safe as a result of the things that I've just mm-hmm. sort of discussed. so what this new emer- this emergency bill does is put into law that the courts cannot refer to Rwanda as an unsafe country so it has to be referred to as safe okay um, now this has obviously been criticized by you know some on the left and even some within the Conservative Party mm-hmm. by basically saying that courts have determined as fact that Rwanda is not safe, yeah. and the government's solution to that is basically passing a law that says it, it is. Not, not actually by, you know, making it safe or anything like sure. that, now, just by t- stating you have to refer to it from now on as safe. It's also quite interesting that within the bill, it's got a couple of things in that just seem to be performative. Okay. So there's a little line in there that says that um, Parliament is sovereign, which which, you know, you can kind of understand if you're doing, you know, like a press release or something like that. Sure. But for it to actually be written in legislation, like that what what, what we know this. Yeah. This has been established for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Why is that aligned within it's just to be performative. Um I didn't know that. that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. We're now using legislation as like culture war vehicle. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's quite... remarkable. Um so yeah, that that that's in there as well. So tomorrow is the second reading of this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and Today, there's been a well. Today, while we're recording, so this is Monday. There's been a whole load of different groups within the Conservative Party that have been making their announcements as to how they're going to vote on this bill, um, which is a bit of a concern for Sunak because. You know, if he loses that, he's he's centred this on it. You know, his his whole premiership um, will be defined by this. It's one mm-hmm. of his key priorities for government, um, and he's got people to the left of him and to the right of him, both considering whether they're going to vote against it. So there's a real risk that he could lose this vote, and if he does, then he has some serious problems. Are you looking at me?
0: I'm looking generally. <laughs> yeah, I can
1: continue. I think it's worth so. I think what's interesting about this is, I, I think I can understand, I mean, obviously you can understand why the left of the Tory parliamentary part doesn't want to vote for this. They yes. just think it's, uh, it, it's sort of at least superficially inconsistent with the UK's international obligations. Yeah. It's ambiguous about how it interacts with those between the judiciary and parliament. Um, and obviously it's just like, it's not their vibes. They're generally quite mm-hmm. pro immigration, or well, at least less immigration skeptic than let's just say like Sunak and the, the, the cabinet at the moment. Um, but what I do feel bad for Sunak in that he's also getting flack from the right of the party. So the right of the party basically is <laughs> just saying that it's not it's not going far enough. And that ideally I think Ben will probably know more about this than I do, but they want to include those notwithstanding clauses and some of them also want to leave the ECHR, mm-hmm. um, which is actually the, the sort of like the main body of international law that binds the UK and like prevents the UK from committing to these um, uh, Rwanda schemes because um, the UN Convention on Human Rights on Migration is a convention. Like it's mm-hmm. not actually that it's legally binding, but we are legally signed up to the ECHR, which is the European Convention on Human Rights, and it's enforced by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So, for example, when the Rwanda flight was stopped at the last minute, mm-hmm. that was the ECHR that yeah. did it. Um, and so they've said, we should just leave it. And just for context, it's worth mentioning, the only other European countries that are outside the ECHR are Belarus and Russia. So it doesn't put us in great company. But yeah. the, what I feel bad for Sunak is that even if you buy those arguments and Sunak said like I sort of he, he understands his arguments. The Rwandan government said they wouldn't they would ditch the treaty if basically the UK went ahead with either notwithstanding clauses or left the ECHR mm. because the Rwandan government is terrible optics for them. They don't yeah. want to be seen I mean, this ties into Paul Kagame who's the leader of Rwanda his like wider policy of sort of trying to modernize Rwanda and bring it into like we might describe as like the western international community I mean maybe too much but like he's basically trying to change he's trying to do some good PR for Rwanda, Mm. and this obviously isn't good PR, to be sort of seen to facilitating violations of international law, or at least, like, withdrawals
2: from uncontroversial human rights treaties. So it's not just the notwithstanding clauses at the right you are annoyed about either. The thing that they're saying is that the bill specifically focuses on this, like, Rwanda is safe Mm -hmm. line. So what... So the ERG made a statement at midday on Monday, which is the day that we're recording, um, and Marc Francois, who heads it, basically said that he's concerned that... um, asylum seekers will launch legal challenges not, you know, on, on things outside of whether Rwanda is safe. So it, that is focusing so specifically on that clause sure. that they'll launch what he sees as spurious legal challenges to try and block deportations um, based on, you know, other other problematic elements. They've also, yeah, that, that ties on to another thing they complained about, which is that it still
1: leaves open the possibility for individual appeals. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's asylum it, yeah. seekers could make appeals and the right of the Conservative Party worries that that will mean that this new policy isn't sufficiently deter- deterring other asylum seekers mm-hmm. and it's just too, like, legally ambiguous. But the, the, I think that's sort of, of the point. The point is that, they sure, Sunak could have gone further in loads of ways that would have made the right of the Tory party happier. But the Rwandans... Rwanda said, we're not going to go ahead with this. So yeah. it's, it's redundant. Like, he couldn't have actually gone further. Otherwise, the treaty would have collapsed and he wouldn't have a third country to deport people to. Mm-hmm. And But the fact... Even though that's just like... That's just, all, those are the facts on the ground. He's still getting flack from the right... Of the, Tory party and I mean he should just have to say to them look guys I understand but this wouldn't work because yeah. the whole thing would fall apart And that somehow just doesn't pass muster. So I do feel a bit bad for him. I mean, it does feel quite Brexity in that respect. Why do you think Mm. that
0: is? Like, these are arguably smart people. Like, they they presumably understand that, like, he's doing the most he could do. What they're actually asking for isn't feasible anyway. They know that this is a kind of a performative, pointless argument. So I But why are they
1: doing it? I think there's three things here. So the first, I think, is that he got very unlucky in that the immediate reaction to this bill Mm. from not even just right-wing Tories like, um, big Tories, but, like, even Robert Jenrick, who was his former engagement minister, who resigned, the immediate reaction was very critical. Sure. And I think that's actually... Robert Jenrick probably resigned for personal reasons. He probably... Probably because he's positioning for a better job when Sunak has to resign. I sure. I mean, like, that's cynical, but I think that's... Uh, maybe it's unfair, and maybe... But he was previously a moderate Tory, and... Or at least relatively moderate... And he was, uh, he was called Robert Generic because he just didn't have, like, actual policy great, positions. It's a great slide. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. so good. And the fact that he's resigned over what is quite a, a hawkish immigration policy, saying it's not sufficiently right-wing, it just doesn't really... It's not consistent with his previous politics. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? So I think it's sort of fair to conclude that he at least had an eye on keeping, you know, on his, like, future political aspirations. And he's probably hoping that when Sunak goes and... Uh, Most likely outcome is a more right-wing leader takes over. Mm -hmm. This will burnish his right-wing credentials, immigration, and maybe get him a job in the next cabinet. And then Suella Braverman, who's who's constantly vying, positioning for the upcoming leadership election, she was also quite critical of it straight out the the blocks. And I think that just set the tone for Mm. quite a lot of like right-wing Tory MPs, and they just sort of followed suit. The other thing uh, I think about it is the, the I think some of them just doubt that Sunak is being. Even though the Rwandans have confirmed it, they sort of just doubt that that's true. They sort of think, like, oh, if you push them harder, yeah, sure, you could have got a better sure. deal. And the third thing, I th- and I do think this is true of quite a lot of the immigration debate, is it's a symptom of like a wider cakeism. Like it's this sort of like, we can have our cake in it, we mm-hmm. can just do this. Like we just need to try hard enough. And it is a bit reminiscent of the, of the Brexit era mm-hmm. when certain politicians weren't, if they're not blind to the political realities they at least sort of like were conveniently ignore them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that plays into it a little bit. I do just think when it comes to immigration policy, it's, it's become so difficult and so sort of like charged that people are very unwilling to show flex, even if that's just sort of what, the that, that those are just a reflection of the realities on the ground.
2: Do mm. you see what I mean? I think there's also an element of just, I know that you sort of, touched on this in, the, in, in your first of those three reasons, but I think it's just an element of positioning, you know, uh, and, and posturing. Sunak's mm. um, not doing well in the polls. This is something that has become sort of uh, almost like a wedge issue within the Conservative Party mm-hmm. um, between the moderates and, and those on the, on the right wing. And I think that there were certain um, people who want to try and show that they really are, you know, going to, they're really strong on migration and yeah. all this. So uh, by you you know undermining the Prime Minister saying that he's not going far enough when he loses the next election you can then point to him and say well he should have gone further and I was actually saying that he should have gone Mm -hmm. further and that's why uh, I should be I should be in the top job or in cabinet or whatever sure um so I think there is just this has become so charged and and the other thing to, to just bear in mind with all of this is that um you know the Conservative Party have been saying for years that they want to bring the number of uh, the, the sort of migration rate down to the tens of thousands. And what we're talking about here is asylum mm-hmm. people who are seeking asylum and small boats and all that kind of thing, which accounts for such a small percentage of um, the migration figures. Uh, that, that, that this isn't this isn't going to that, that, this isn't going to be the thing that brings migra- the migration rate down to the tens mm-hmm. of thousand. This, this is this has become entire. Like I, I still think that this is such a. Charged thing. This has become such a thing driven by posturing. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of it is motivated by that.
1: I think that's that's true, of course. That, that, that they've been saying the tens of thousand things, tens of thousand mm. things for ages so since Cameron, at least. Yeah, twenty ten I think is when it was first yeah. mentioned. But the I do think that like sure they're not going to get it down by reducing asylum claims because you're right, asylum claims make up like less than ten percent mm. of like aggregate immigration into the UK. Mm. But the asylum thing is a separate and relevant political problem for the Tories. So I don't think it's
2: like politically not sensible for them to be trying to fix that. No, but I think that a lot... My, my point is that I think so much of it is driven by posturing. Like, if, if you really are committed to solving... You want to bring the immigration rate down, you've got to look at students, and you've got to look at things like the Ukraine and but, Hong Kong students. to be
1: fair to them, the, the couple of days before the Rwanda policy, they did also introduce a whole load of measures that basically like increase the salary yeah, threshold sure. to mm-hmm. bring in like for this is for
2: regular immigration not asylum seekers but how much focus is being paid on this versus that that's what i'm saying if you really are focused on bringing the migration rate down the argument would be about the measures that they went far they're
1: two separate problems aren't they like they're, they're trying to do both things and the asylum thing is a real problem for them and this is why i focus on it i also think that actually i know that the, the, the tens of thousands of is the like the most frequent bit of rhetoric mm. but i do think that actually the the, the political problem for them is is with asylum seekers. Like, that's the thing that Farage was focused on before he went off to the jungle. Uh, That's the thing they're worried about, reform running on, really, in the future. Um, And it's the thing that actually the the public are most worried about. Like, the public, if you poll them on, like, oh, do you think we should have less students or less Ukrainians or less um, Hong Kong, uh, like, asylum seekers? Mm I don't know, what it's British nationals overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they say no, 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 no. But if you ask them, like, you know, do you think the asylum system is broken? They they say yes, basically. So I think this is the fact the amount of focus paid to this is in some sense a reflection of the public's political priorities
0: obviously we're having this conversation on monday before the vote happens Mm. we've got talk here of people on the left of the tory party objecting for one set of reasons people on the right objecting for an entirely different set of reasons what do we think the vague numbers are going to be here you're saying there's a chance he
2: could lose how real is that chance and how big could that loss be yeah so there are, so, within the Conservative Party, obviously, uh, and we mention this in quite a lot of the UK videos had these days, it's obviously very factional. So you have six different right-wing Tory factions that are all basing their judgment on how to vote on the ruling by the ERG. Mm-hmm. So the ERG came out on Monday month, so today, as we're recording at about midday. Um... And headed by Marc Francois. And there was this whole thing about a group of lawyers, something like the Star Chamber. chamber. So they were going to make this decision on what they thought. And obviously we referred to this earlier and they basically said, we don't think it's gone um, far enough. Mm -hmm. So that was the ruling. So there are now six um, conservative groups. That's the ERG, the New Conservatives, the Common Sense Group, the Northern Research Group um, and the Conservative Growth Group. So five of them Mm -hmm. um, uh, that are all... Uh, uh, a lot of them have said that they're going to make their decision about how to vote tomorrow at 6pm today so we don't know how they're going to vote yet yeah. but the, the actual judgment by the, the lawyers in the ERG was that we don't think it goes far enough mm-hmm. so we can expect them to at least push back a bit whether they're going to go as far as to not vote for it that's that's a separate question. Yeah, Francois hinted today that he thinks that the vote should be pulled, but he hasn't actually said that they're going to. He's going to try and instruct the E.R.G. to vote against it. So mm-hmm. we don't really know about that yet. Um, the the centrists are mainly represented by the One Nation Caucus, which is led by Damien Green. They said that they'll make the decision again at six p.m. today. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how they're going to vote. Ultimately. Only 29 MPs, Tory MPs, need to vote against the bill for it to fail, or okay. 57 to abstain. Um, the, for, you know, the ERG comprises about 100. When you say that, you just—it reminds you quite how
1: many MPs they've just lost.
2: Yeah. Right, mm. Since the
1: Boris Johnson, what was the majority when Boris Johnson? It came was in? 59 or something, wasn't it? With that, I think that's how many people have had to abstain? Have you just picked no, 57? I, no, 57. So yeah, I think it was about 59. They just ticked off quite a few, haven't they? they yeah, there's been quite a few by-elections. Mm. Yeah, things are just a lot tighter than I remember them being
2: yeah um so twenty nine to vote against fifty seven to abstain the opposition is all expected to vote against of <laughs> course so the the question really is, is whether they're going to abstain or vote against how many we're we going to see I, I I think that there'll be f- quite a few abstentions. I think it'll be narrow, but I think the government will just win mm-hmm. is 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 my thought I think that the main groups tonight will suggest that they're going to vote in favor and, and one other quick thing just to bear in mind as well is that this is only the second reading mm. so there is some discussion at the minute that those on the right are going to try and seek an agreement with Sunak that they'll vote in favor of it at this point yeah if Sunak is open to scheduling amendments you know in the committee stage yeah. in early next year and I think that that is likely what's gonna happen okay. so I think that they're gonna to come to some agreement where they vote in favor on the understanding that they can maybe get some amendments in at the beginning of next year. Because if he loses this vote tomorrow, then, you know, things are really going to look bad for him and his premiership.
0: And what would that look like? Obviously, you mentioned in your underreported story the first government loss since 2019. This would be the second. Yeah. More significant, considering the last one was underreported. Yeah. Um, What does that look like for his premiership, his government the prospects
2: of another election etc well talk and possibly letters of no confidence will be you know th- th- that 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 will really kick that mm-hmm. into gear i think i think because he staked so much of his premiership on this because it's one of his his five main things because he's you know this is like the third or fourth bit of legislation going through mm-hmm. um, related to small boats and asylum and all that um and you know, it's seen that each one that comes through is because the previous one had failed. Yeah. You know, it, it just adds pressure to him and I think that, the you know, technically speaking, I think what we'll see is a lot of talk about voter confidence. A lot of talk that the prime minister can't get important business through. A lot of talk that he's failing on one of his key um, elements, and possibly let, you know actual letters being sent in. You know, whether we hit that threshold, you know, we don't even know if he loses the vote tomorrow. So, sure. you know, speculating on how many letters might be sent in is 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 incredibly difficult. But I think it, it's very possible that we'll get quite a lot of letters sent in, and you know, if they hit that threshold. I don't know exactly what the threshold is, 55 letters, mm-hmm. I think. Um, then, you know, it'll be a vote of no confidence in him. You know, I'm com- I am I feel fairly confident. I know that there's so many things for that to happen, but I feel fairly confident that even if we were to get there, he'd win. Okay. Um, but, you know, very, very undermined.
0: What are your thoughts on this, Zach? Both the the prospects of loss and what that would mean, but also the fact we're even having this conversation at this stage in Sonax Premiership. <sighs>
1: I do actually just feel it. I mean, this is not a popular opinion, but I do actually just feel a bit bad for him. Sure. Like, it's just, it's <laughs> such chaos. I you don't. You know what I mean? Like, I, oh, I don't know. I, like, I, I feel like this is, I mean, this one, again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, like, there's, there's nothing else he could have done. This is mm-hmm. as far, as, if you take his word for it, this is as far as, the, as Rwanda was going to go. Yeah. And so, like, what else do the right wing the Tory party want? Um, I, yeah, I think Ben's probably right. I think that's the base case, that it will probably pass by a narrow margin. And then I think if there was a leadership challenge, I think he'd win. So I, I think he'll stay in power. I expect him to fight the next election, like mm-hmm. whenever that happens. Um, but I do think that the Tory party is now just stuck in this doom loop, which we've talked about in the past. But it's, you know, when you've got this degree of factionalism, you're just, you just can't run an effective electoral like machine. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. And so you end up with this whole doom loop where, the factionism makes the polling worse. And the, the bad polling just encourages further factionism because people are just positioning for the upcoming leadership contest that they yeah. know is inevitable. And that just makes the polling worse, which makes the factionism mm. worse, which makes the polling worse ad infinitum. And they do, just be, they do just seem to be stuck in this in this doom loop. I also think that there's something deeply unwise about Siak's decision to make immigration the like, central plank of his premiership. You know, when he first came in, it was all about economic competence. And I still think that would have been a better bet for him yeah. because mm-hmm. I think you, you see how how much difficulty Labour have trying to differentiate themselves from the Tories on sort of fiscal policy. You know, like the, uh, the, the Tories' fiscal policy is deeply unpopular. It's a lot of taxes and sort of crumbling public services. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, there are sort of fiscal constraints that mean that there aren't that many alternatives available to them. I mean, there, there are stuff you could do, but they're politically quite risky. Yeah, And you, you see that reflected in the fact that Labour basically just say, we'll do the
2: exact same thing as the Tories, even though the Tories... Fiscal plans aren't great. I I sort of agree that that is the takeaway. Is that it is almost ridiculous that he's pivoted his premiership towards this, away from economic competence. But I actually think that that after what happens tomorrow, and I think that it will be certain abstentions or votes, you know, votes against. That his takeaway will be that he needs to go further right to appease those on the right. So I think that he'll, you know if tomorrow happens, as we're expecting, that there are abstentions mm-hmm. about to against, that the, the thing that we will, the, the change that we'll see is that he's going to move further right to try and appease those on the right. Well, I, sure. So I think that I, that's, I, that's...
1: I agree with that descriptively. I think that's very true. I think that is the, the base case. You're right, is that he's going to face more political turmoil and he'll react by tilting even further right. Because that's what he's done so far. That's, yeah, that's but, how but he's, again, I think that's deeply politically unwise. Yeah. Just for, I think what he basically makes, he's confusing two things. One is the fact that Immigration and asylum is very high up the public's like mm-hmm. political priorities. And he's seen that polling and he's clearly gone, as have lots of governments, okay, we need to talk tough game on immigration and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And that works very well if you're in opposition. And again, you see this across Europe. It's a yeah. lot of new European governments come in basically because they promise to get tough on immigration. But it doesn't work when you're in government because, and again, this is in some part related to the fact that immigration is such a high on their sort of policy agenda at the moment – Immigration is just really difficult to solve. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just us that's struggling like, to solve this issue in inverted commas. Like, I don't want to uh, imply that it's like a bad thing or like, it needs a solution necessarily. But immigration, insofar as the public perceives it, immigration is a difficult thing to solve, yeah. or at least insofar as the conservative voting base perceives it, because they do want lower immigration. Mm-hmm. But it's just a really difficult issue to solve. Um, and so I think what you should have really done is looked across Europe and seen that even those right-wing governments that come in promising to fix immigration, Georgia Maloney is a very good example, for example, when they actually get into government, they really struggle to do it because it's a really complicated problem, not just legally. We have all these international, like, human rights obligations via the ECHR, for example. Um, and But it's also economically in the mm-hmm. various parts of our economy, especially parts of the public sector, just do rely on immigration. And the public's attitudes to immigration is, and I mentioned this again before, it's just quite schizophrenic. They want low immigration, but then you ask them where they want low immigration, and they're just not sure where they want mm-hmm. low immigration. And so I think if you are going to try and make immigration your sort of policy plank, you have to be less reactive. You have to actually make an argument to the public, be like, OK, in these places, I know you think you want low immigration, but we need immigrants here or we're going to pay a massive economic cost. But he's too afraid to make those arguments. He doesn't have the political capital to make them arguments. So he's just trying to follow the polling in a way. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to, well, trying to bring down immigration without due regard for the costs involved.
2: I just think I I completely agree with all that. And I I just, the only thing I'd add is that if you think he's got, you know, limited political capital to make any legitimate arguments on immigration at the minute, Mm -hmm. wait until what happens after tomorrow. I think that's only going to be diminished. And I think you're only going to see him follow that polling even further into next June in the the general election. I think that his instinct so far has shown that when he's challenged, he will try and appease the right. Mm -hmm. But substantively, I don't think he has the solutions. I think he just, and this emergency bill shows that. Uh, I I really just think that that next year we we will see him move to the right um, even further without any sort of, uh, you know, anything to back that up, any Mm -hmm. actual like substantive policy aims.
0: Okay, so to end the podcast, as always, we're going to run through our world leader leaderboard. If you're new to the show because we've just moved over to the tldr uk channel from the tldr podcast channel i'm going to briefly explain how this works each episode our guests this week zach and ben will be moving people around on the world leader leaderboard to reflect the current state of play in geopolitics at the very top of the board we have the people who are doing best right now the people at the bottom of the board are the people deemed to be doing the worst the way that people move is that each week zach and ben choose a winner and loser of the week who will move up or down one place they're also allowed to add new people to the board if they think there's people who are being underrepresented by our board and different rules are in place for that that will explain if and when that happens essentially though each week they're asked for who their winner and loser in politics this week is and then those changes will be reflected in the board one thing to emphasize <laughs> is that this isn't in any way an endorsement of these people there's people doing well on the board that people we might not like but that's fine. This isn't a reflection of morality or, or our of politics. our politics. If this it was, is just very
1: confusing.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. This is just how things stand right now. We've been doing this for a few months. There is going to be a link in the description of this episode um, to the last episode of the podcast we recorded, where we ran through the entire board and justified why everyone was where they were. So if you're confused by any of this, go and watch that episode. You'll find out why people are where they are. If you're not confused, great. Let's move on. <laughs> Um, let's start with losers of the week. These are people who are going to be moving down one spot on the board. Zach, who is your loser of the week, and I will move it for you. My loser of the
1: week, which is very off-brand for me, is Mohammed bin Salman. MBS. Yeah, poor MBS. So he's going down sort of for two related reasons. Uh, the, the main reason is that he, with the rest of OPEC and actually OPEC Plus, so including Russia. He's been cutting, this is such a me story, but he's been cutting oil production in the hope to boost prices because he just wants basically more money in the long term, wants structurally high oil prices so he can fund all his crazy projects, Mm -hmm. like the Saudi Football League and the massive neon line city, that sort of thing. Um, And he's just been singularly unsuccessful at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, oil prices are down, something like they're about $75 a barrel at the moment, which is down from like a couple of months ago, and is trading more like 80. But just like fundamentally, that's just quite low compared to what most analysts were expecting like mm-hmm. coming out of the pandemic, um, and especially post uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, that's mainly because the Americans have just started pumping tons of oil, mm-hmm. uh, and that is quite biggest in- oil producer in the world. I've There heard. you go. That's word <laughs> on the street, um, and that's just quite impressive. From the it just goes to show like the sort of strength of the, the American like economy. Is I don't mean like the wide economy. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's pretty strong as well. But more just like the sort of pure like commodity power of yeah. America, which is just wild. Um, and the other reason is that he's basically been trying to like um, convince the rest of OPEC to also cut production to try yeah. and boost prices. And some of the small numbers have just had enough because they've been like, well, we can keep on cutting and it keeps on going down. Yeah. Like, I just want money now. Yeah, um, And so you've had lots of reports that lots of countries are secretly like producing more than they should Mm. because you're part of a cartel you don't normally say i'm not going to do it but then you also a couple countries you just said they're not going to do it so i think angola for example just said like i've had enough of this sure (laughs) we're just going to produce a whole load more oil um and there'll be some questions about whether or not russia is sticking to its cuts Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think those are those are the two reasons that things aren't going great for mbs it's got lower oil revenues it would like Mm-hmm. And his the main vehicle for like Saudi geopolitical power, which is OPEC and OPEC Plus, which is sort of how what they dominate, mm-hmm. um, is fracturing a little bit. Uh, yeah, so I think that's that's why he's going down.
0: Ben, who's your loser of the week?
2: Yeah, so my loser is uh, someone who's not currently on the board. So I'll Ooh, give you this. Oh, a new person. It's Hamza Yusuf. The. Uh, The leader of Scotland, the first minister.
0: Okay. Um, So basically. Sorry, Ben, I know. I said I I I explained the rules if this happened. Yes. What happens now is that they enter on this row. Losers of the week, new entries enter on this row. Winners of the week enter on this row. So just above the middle or below the middle. You're not
2: talking to a microphone. I
0: know, but I'm loud. How's the going
2: there? Yeah, so basically, he had a meeting with the Turkish president this week, um, or maybe it was end of last week, um, and he's been told off by the uh, by the foreign secretary David Cameron. He's threatened mm. uh, threatened him, saying that we'll also need to consider the presence of Scottish government officers in UK government posts. Um, so the idea. So basically, obviously, Scotland is a devolved nation. Yeah, um, they have certain um, devolved powers, but there are reserve powers. One of the reserve powers is. Um, you know, foreign affairs. Yeah. So it should be all done by the UK Foreign Secretary. It's currently David Cameron. Um, and they've argued that because uh, Yusuf has met w- w- with Erdogan, um, it's broken, like, Protocol effectively. Okay. Um, now there is some technicality in that um, if it's a, a reserve power, so something a devolved power, sorry, uh, which is something that the Scottish government have, has competency over, then they are allowed to meet foreign leaders. Mm. Um, but the UK government is basically saying that it's it's not that. And the okay. point here is is that the, the the UK government is using this now to basically kind of threaten okay. um, the Scottish government a bit. Um, and, and Youssef isn't doing particularly well at the minute as it is. So mm-hmm. things like this really do not help him.
1: Yeah, first, the other reason that it's bad for him I think, is it suggests that David Cameron... So, Nicola Sturgeon did quite a lot of this during mm. her premiership, um, but it suggests that David Cameron is going to be cracking down on sort of like the Scotland having its own foreign policy mm. and Scotland, like, hanging out with foreign leaders independently of the UK. Um, I think that's bad for because I think he doesn't have political power to, to basically resist that. And so I do think this will be sort of the end of mm. Scotland having its sort of own stage uh, in the international community. The other reason I think it's bad is because, and I understand why it happened, but of all the foreign leaders to like meet with and sort of like mm. uh, try and forge your own independent foreign policy, I, Erdogan is probably not the one. Like he's not that popular in the UK. Sure. Um, and I understand why he did it. I mean, Erdogan presumably tried to get Hamza Yusuf because Erdogan is one of the staunchest supporters of um, Israel, of Palestine, rather, mm-hmm. um, or staunchest critics of Israel, should we say. Uh, and I think he probably sees Hamza Yusuf uh, as a sort of natural ally in that mm-hmm. respect, because Hamza Yusuf, obviously, his in-laws were stuck in Gaza. Um, and he's been one of the more vocal critics of, of Israel, uh, you know, at least in the West, especially, mm-hmm. definitely in the UK. Um, but I don't think it's, a, it's, it's probably the person you necessarily want to associate yourself yeah. with immediately when you're, you're sort of making your first forays into independent foreign policy. That's a fair
0: yeah. point. Yeah. Um, your winner of the week, Zach, who are you moving up the board? My winner of the week is, is Xi Jinping. Whoa. Yeah,
1: big Xi. Um, so this g- comes, this is mainly because last, I think maybe the last month or so, uh, Huawei released their new phone. And it took a bit of time for people to get their hands on it. But basically, the latest chip in the Huawei's new phone, I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, it's, it's a month or two old. Um Really outperformed expectations. So, the US and basically the US has been leading this sort of sanctions regime mm-hmm. uh, against China uh, when it was microchip development um because they consider them strategically significant technologies and they're, they're basically worried they basically want to maintain their sort of like tech hegemony against yeah. China. Um, and that's forced China to sort of produce its domestically its own chips. And this most recent chip, we don't want to get into technicalities too much, but basically. It's only like a year or two behind the most advanced commercially available mm-hmm. Western chips. And then a couple of days ago, Huawei announced, and again, this is hard to verify, but they basically announced that they had created a 5-nanometer chip. So this would be like basically the smallest chip around. I think mm. that Intel is currently working on 7 nanometers, okay. or has finished 7 nanometers. And again, that has to all be verified. But the headline story here is that China is just making a lot better progress on its domestic chip development than Western analysts expected, especially than the US expected. And I think this is part of this wider trend is that we're, f- we're finding out that actually sanctions are often not that effective. But I think just more accurately, their efficacy really wanes quite quickly over time. Mm. So when you put these massive sort of chip sanctions on places like China, it's sure it might slow them down for a couple of months. But actually, they, they normally end up catching up, and yeah. it's very hard to sanction a country as big as China in a globalized, trade system that's interconnected as ours currently is. Um, so, I think it's an interesting. Obviously, it's, it's good news for China, but I also think it's an interesting data point uh, in the wide like sanctions argument. You know, a lot of people are quite mm. optimistic, or at least before, let's just say the last couple of years, optimistic. The sanctions are like a good tool to a good tool to sort of fight geopolitical battles without running the risk of actual military escalation. And I think that actually we realise that sanctions aren't that effective. I mean you saw something similar with Russia that the sanctions regime on Russia has been like mixed in its efficacy. Let's yeah. so say um but yeah so I think that's that's good for Xi Jinping. I'm not saying he's gonna great time, you know economic woes still very yeah. very real. He's still only on the middle of the board. Yeah, but I think this is this is pretty good for him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Ben, who's your winner of the week? My winner of the week is President Lula. Um, Whoa! Yeah. So, basically, and if you watched the Daily Briefing yesterday, you'll know all about this, um, but he's overseen a huge drop in the deforestation rate um, of the Amazon. So, um, if you haven't... A- Where is he? Yes. Oh, there. <laughs> he's
0: just in we- the, he's just deep in the middle of this section.
2: Sorry, <laughs> go, man. Okay. Um, so, basically, uh, last year... That you can compare like month by month. So November this year, there was a 64% drop from the November previously in the deforestation rate. So he announced this at COP, and he Mm -hmm. also made clear that he wanted to try and drop the deforestation rate to um, zero by 2030. And the fact that it's dropped, you know, it's a 60, you know, accounts for 64% drop just from year to year Mm -hmm. is obviously big progress in that. And it's something that he made quite clear, you know him following on from Bolsonaro um, you know and the the deforestation rate obviously went up under him so it's it's not only good news for the Amazon uh, rainforest but also for his own aims coming into office and it's you know a big step towards this you know zero deforestation goal by 2030 so you know pretty good news for him pretty good news for him that's pretty good okay so that's how the board sits today
0: we'll be updating the board again in the next episode of the TLDR News podcast which comes out on thursday uh yeah but on different channel on the tldr global channel yeah so if you want to see the next episode where we discuss another topic and we also talk about underreported stories and we move around the board make sure you subscribe to tldr global youtube channel or you subscribe to tldr podcast wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll be updated when it comes out
2: yeah and so we're back exciting. here
0: on the same channel doing this one next next week. tuesday yeah. tuesdays and thursdays yeah until we die <laughs> um we I will see you promise there. that for me <laughs> you haven't seen your contract look more carefully <laughs> you can move jobs for be back yeah. here on tuesdays um we'll see you then we'll see you next tuesday on the tldo uk channel next thursday on the tldo global channel and between then all over the youtube all over YouTube. All over YouTube. The YouTube. The YouTube.
2: <laughs> <laughs>